1: hey welcome to stuff to blow your mind my name is robert lamb
0: and i'm joe mccormick and today we're going to be taking a look at interior spaces
1: yeah the year 2020 certainly brings to mind the old curse may you live in interesting times Mm -hmm. and one of the the factors here has of course been the coronavirus uh, covid 19 pandemic and in an effort to fight the spread of the illness save lives and prevent overwhelming our hospitals we've made a lot of changes to our lives and these range from the simple such as just wearing a mask when you're out uh, in public and you can't social distance from people uh, to the harder choices about em- employment and in uh, life choices. Mm-hmm. We've all been social distancing and uh, stay at home orders. Teleworking and quarantine have meant that we've all been spending a lot more time at home. Now, depending on your home, this could mean a lot of things, but we wanted to explore what this means from a biological uh, standpoint for the most part here. Now, Now, make no mistake, spending more time at home has absolutely been the right move, but just as it's forced you to focus more on, say, that weird stain on your ceiling, we wanted to focus on the other often unseen aspects of life in the home.
0: Right. Much the same way that uh, being, say, on a Spanish galleon out in the middle of the ocean might have made you pay much more attention to the biology and behavior of of ship rats than you ever would have otherwise. I think uh, being at home more and more is forcing all of us to turn our eyes and maybe our microscopes and magnifying glasses to the corners and the cornices and the shower heads and the drain traps and all of the wonderful places in our house where life dwells.
1: Yeah, uh, we're going to really get into the difference really between the natural world outside of our homes and the unnatural world inside and get into some ideas about how uh, how we could perhaps enable our interior world to be a little more uh, on the natural side of things. But before we get into all that, uh, I wanted to take a moment here just to discuss the history of houses in general, you know, just to get into the concept of what a house is. Uh, Our our first and still most important interior artificial environment. So you can certainly look at a home as an artificial cave to a certain extent. And indeed, we have lots of early evidence that early hominids sought out shelter in caves in the same way that uh, many other animals do. Uh, These can shelter one against the elements and against predators, and as recently as 130,000 years ago, cave dwellers were already augmenting these natural interior environments with things like rough stone walls. They were using timbers. So, um, so, so you know, even 130,000 years ago, we were taking naturally occurring interior spaces and making them a little less natural. Um, and of course, on top of just the shelter that caves can provide, it also seems that caves had a strong sacred meaning uh, to many of these uh, prehistoric peoples. Those might be important, but ultimately, proximity to water is far more important. Thus, as uh, Kate Spence and Brian M. Fagan point out in uh, uh, in, uh, a section of uh, the Seventy Great Inventions of the Ancient World about homes, most early hominids lived out in the open near streams and lakes. They built temporary structures, and most of this has been lost to time. But some of the earliest evidence of potential structures uh, for homes goes back uh, 1.7 to 0.7 million years ago with uh, Homo erectus sites in southern Africa. And these were potentially temporary with the domestication of fire. Um, and th- these would have been temporary tents, but, uh, but they still would have been artificial interior environments. Now, more secure evidence comes from the Ukraine roughly 44,000 years ago, uh, the, the mammoth bone structures from uh, Moldova, which we recently discussed on the show, actually.
0: Yeah, we did, uh, th- talking about these uh, it, that would have been structures in one of the northernmost habitable regions of the Earth at the time, because this was during a time of uh, glacial advance where the polar ice caps from the north were coming deep down into Europe and Asia. And, uh, and so th- this would have been far, far north, way up among the ice. And for some reason, humans were building these structures out of the bones of mammoths. And we don't know, th- there's still things we don't know about those structures, like how how consistently they were inhabited and for how long and so forth.
1: Right. Now, beyond this, the history of human homes is, is largely dictated by local resources and local climate. A long process of trial and error ends up leading to the development of regional and cultural building forms, construction methods. Uh, but before 9000 BCE, we see evidence of clay houses in Palestine, what is you know, today Palestine. And before 7000 BCE, we see rectangular dwellings in Anatolia. But, but a home is far more than just a shelter. As uh, the authors here point out, houses became key to social structure as well. They point out that the ethnographic studies in West Africa reveal complex and layered symbolic associations and rituals in the context of dwelling. And that this is a, you know, shows that a clear role uh, of physically structuring and expressing the relationship between different members of a household. And we see this, of course, in, um, in cultures uh, you know, throughout history and throughout the world. There's this physical shape of the place, uh, and then that ends up defining or influencing. Uh, like there's this, this feedback between the two. It goes both ways, right? It's kind of like pouring a liquid into a container,
0: Oh, of course. And th- this actually got me thinking about how having permanent constructed dwellings must have changed the way that power and hierarchy are expressed in social groups. And of course, this is true with normal social status. you know, it's it's staked out through displays of wealth or certain kinds of taste or aesthetics in your house, your apartment, your you know, your living space. But this also made me think about the way that for many leadership positions, there is a special house there's a special dwelling place that comes with the job rather than belonging to an individual so here in georgia we have the governor's mansion there is the white house there you know the palace that the king stays at in in many cultures and there's a there's a strange metonymy that derives from this often the house identified with the position of power is used as a metaphorical stand in for the person you know like today the white house said Uh, Such that, like, the permanent dwelling place is actually almost the source of the power, and there just happens to be a particular person living there right now.
1: Yeah, it's weird. We get so used to it because it's just part of our daily... um... Um, our daily, you know, linguistic world, you know, you you read the news, you read about these various locations, these houses, and it's almost as if they have some sort of uh, intrinsic power to them, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you weren't familiar with our cultures, you would read this and and people might think, oh, well, they they, they clearly thought that this big white um, house had some sort of magical powers (laughs) and whoever was allowed to go inside it became the ruler of a country and got to do whatever they want. Yeah, and it's funny that it, it's so
0: normalized for us. Like, we've forgotten to notice that that's weird, that, like, the, yeah. the power is somehow linked to the house itself. Um, but it also makes me wonder, you know, did we think about power differently before living in artificially built environments?
1: Yeah, to what extent did we, um, did, did we end up yeah, changing the way we live our lives by altering this physical environment in which we live. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because so much of what we do, you know, it, it's dictated by the environments that we evolved to thrive in. Right. So anyway, I don't think we need to remind everyone about the value of a home. Housing tends to be one of, if not the most expensive parts of your life. But it's, it's interesting to think about them not Simply as this valuable thing in your life or a valuable location where your life takes place, the basic idea of the house may be as old as our mastery of fire. And it forms out of and forms ideas of who and what we are.
0: And of course, it, it may do so in more and more powerful ways every year as humanity slowly transitions to become a more indoorsy on average species all the time. I was reading some interesting figures about this trend in a book by the science writer Emily Anthes, uh and the book is called The Great Indoors, The Surprising Science of How Buildings Shape Our Behavior, Health, and Happiness. This is a really interesting book, and uh, I'm going to refer to it throughout this episode because she has a, a, an early chapter that's very good about The Microbial Ecology of Indoor Spaces, but she also gets into some interesting territory about the trends in how much built environment and floor space we're actually creating. Obviously, this currently varies a lot by culture and climate, but in some parts of the world, humankind has transitioned to an almost entirely indoor existence. And this really shows in the way we've transformed our environments to convert to this largely indoor existence. Uh, Anthes writes, quote, the island of Manhattan is only 23 square miles in size, but has three times that much indoor floor space. Wow. And furthermore, she refers to a report put together by a United Nations commission in uh, 2017, which concluded that over the next 40 years... Humankind is going to roughly double the amount of indoor floor space that exists currently. And the way this works out is, quote, those additions are equivalent to building the current floor area of Japan every single year from now until 2060. Wow. That much floor is going to take a lot of pine soul
1: <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, it, it is crazy to think about how certainly during uh, pre-pandemic uh, times, you know, you, would, you, you had – this home, this interior space that you live in, you sleep in, you bathe in, you spend time in, and then uh, and it is you know very much like the center of your life. And then you're getting into another interior space, which happens to be motorized and on wheels, and use that to travel then a certain distance to another interior space Mm -hmm. that you'll go into to work, uh, either set at a desk or, you know, work with some sort of machinery or what have you. Uh, And and then at the end of the day, back into this uh, uh, motorized interior space and then return to the one in which you live. It's worth remembering yet again, biologically speaking, this is not normal.
0: This is not yes. like what our bodies are naturally adapted to. Spending this much time indoors is still fairly historically novel, and it is very
1: weird. Yes, but the the other big thing, and this is going to be a recurring theme uh, throughout the rest of the episode, is that these artificial spaces that we made—they are—they're not completely alien you know they're they're constructed of the natural world they're not the natural environment but they are made out of it and uh and and much of the natural world is still present just in um rebalanced and unbalanced ways uh so that is going to be what we're going to really get into like what in creating these interior spaces what sort of environments have we created
0: Right. Indoor spaces are not unnatural in that they're completely separate from the rest of the world. But they're also not just like outdoor spaces. They're kind of like a a special niche environment, like a like a cliff face or an island. You know, it's a place where you have to investigate, Okay, what kinds of life from around and other places are going to colonize this space?
1: Yeah. And, and who are your roommates? Who are your inhuman roommates in this space where you've been trapped uh, these uh, past several months?
0: Well, maybe we should take a break and then when we come back, we can start talking about those inhuman roommates.
1: All right, we're back. So uh, Rob Dunn, a professor of applied ecology at North Carolina State University in Raleigh, wrote an excellent book uh, titled Never Home Alone from Microbes to Millipedes, Camel Crickets and Honeybees. The natural history of where we live. That's a nice long title. I know you, you like those those long colon titles. I, I there, want Joe. like a whole paragraph after the colon. <laughs> but uh, it's as far as they go. It's a pretty good title. Anyway, it came out last October, and it's uh, currently available in all formats. So however you read your books. But uh, I, I remember hearing an interview with the author around the time that came out, and I, I picked it up for this episode because it's uh, yeah it's 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 just a very well written book, and it really gets into some just crazy, uh, mind-bending facts about these artificial environments, most of which we won't even really be able to get into in this episode, uh, but we wanted to, to touch on it. So if, if you look around at science papers, you'll find Dunn's name um, – All over the place uh, when it comes to this area of microbial life. Uh, For instance, he's the co-author on a 2018 paper that found that chimpanzee treetop beds, which are like a daily affair, contain fewer microbes and uh, arthropods than human beds which is not shocking given, again, the the idea that our beds are kind of like set in place. Um, You know, we will change the sheets, but it's not every night probably, whereas the chimps are going to be refreshing things a bit more. Uh, Also, 35% of the bacteria in human beds stem from our own bodies. That includes fecal, oral, and skin bacteria.
0: Yeah, the way I heard it put, because this is covered in Anthes' book too, is that with the with the human bed, basically, you're just going to find tons of human type stuff in it. But for mm-hmm. a chimpanzee's bed, you will find, you know, bugs, arthropods, and microbes in in this bed. But they're almost all from the surrounding environment. Uh, the way it was put was that you might not be able to tell that a chimpanzee had ever been there. Right. <laughs> Very strange. Yeah. But from Anthes's book, there's a uh, So there's a chapter that discusses a lot of the work of the same researcher, Rob Dunn, the the ecologist at North Carolina State, but also a researcher that he's collaborated with a lot named uh, Noah Fierre, who's a microbiologist at UC Boulder. And there's a part where it talks about a survey that they tried to conduct called the Wildlife of Our Homes Project. It was a pilot study they started in North Carolina. And so what they would do was they would get a bunch of families to take cotton swab samples of seven different surfaces from inside their homes. And this would include a countertop, a cutting board, a refrigerator shelf, a pillowcase, a toilet seat a TV screen and then the trim around an interior doorway. And the results were interesting. They found more than 2000 types of microbes in these samples, and there were distinct microbial habitats within the house. So, perhaps unsurprisingly, kitchens would have a lot of bacteria that are naturally associated with food that might be, you know, found on food or aid in the decomposition of food. Meanwhile, doorways would have a lot of environmental species, stuff you might find outside the house, you know, things you would find on plant leaves and in the soil. But then this was the the quote that really stuck with me. Uh, Anthus writes, quote, from a microbiological perspective, toilet seats and pillowcases looked strikingly similar. Both (laughs) were
1: dominated by bacteria that typically live on our skin and in our mouths. All right. So that's that's kind of a, a shocking sounding statement that might make you want to instantly go and wash your pillowcase and maybe your toilet seat too. But, uh, but, but hold on, wait till we get through the whole episode, because right. I, I think one of the big take homes here is like, if you think that your pillow is going to be a microbial sterile um, uh, experience, you know, you should think again, likewise with the toilet seat, likewise with anything in the house. So- in Dunn's book, one of, one of the things he drives home is that, again, our, our house environments are, again, not natural environments, but they are made out of the natural environment and they are not cut off from the natural environment. So what we end up with is an artificial environment that kind of mashes up all of these various environmental parameters, sometimes in surprising ways, especially when it comes to microbes. Because as as we've discussed on the show plenty of times before, there is no microbe-free living. Our bodies, independent of anything else, are home to multitudes of microbes. Uh, To come back to a quote that we've uh, pulled up on the show uh, in discussion in the past, in A Life in a World Without Microbes by Gilbert and Neufeld, published in PLOS Biology, the authors contend that, quote, it would be false to claim that macroscopic life cannot exist without microbes. However, although life would persist in the absence of microbes, both the quantity and quality of life would be reduced drastically. So Dunn points out that even the outer layer of our skin is just this rich microbial environment. Our armpit bacteria are essentially fed by glands, nurturing uh, what has likely been a, an historically important microbe passenger. And we can we can look at this as an example of the sort of microbe that then thrives in our created environments. We tend to find the same bacteria uh, that, uh, that, that thrives in our underarms living in our homes, especially homes where males live. If there's like a predominantly male male population of a household, you will find this particular bacterium, I believe it's uh, cornebacterium, uh, just thriving. Corinobacterium. Corinobacterium, yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, so the, this thing about the sex composition of the household versus the household microbiome was also mentioned in Anthes' book, and, and it's very interesting. So just as you say, homes with more male residents tend to have higher counts of uh, bacteria such as uh, Rosaburia, and this is commonly a gut bacteria, as well as uh, Carinobacterium and Dermabacter. And uh, Anthus points out that these are most common on the skin. Now, carinobacterium is often found in the armpit, as you say. It is a contributor to body odor. But also, it's been found that just on average, men tend to have more carinobacteria on their skin than women do, and men tend to shed more skin microbes into the environment than women do. And then on the other hand, households that have more women living in them tended to have higher counts of lactobacillus, which is our old friend from the fermentation episode. Ah. I don't know if this translates to a workable difference, maybe not, but it makes me wonder if it's possible that houses occupied by higher numbers of women might be a better place to make sauerkraut. Hmm, interesting. Just something to think about. But sort of what this suggests is that humans are walking fountains of microbes. We we shed our microbial passengers everywhere we go. And it turns out this can be kind of quantified to creepy levels. <laughs> So consider this: no two people's microbiomes are exactly the same. Each person is a unique ecosystem. So if everybody has their own unique profile of microbiota, and everybody is shedding microbial life all the time, are we essentially leaving identifiable microbial evidence of our presence everywhere we go? You know, kind of the the, mm-hmm. the slug trail of our microbiome all over the place. And the answer appears to be kind of yeah. Uh, Anthos reports one study led by Jack Gilbert at the University of Chicago. I think that might be the Gilbert of the uh, Gilbert and uh, Neufeld study that you mentioned a minute ago. Uh, But it followed three families that were in the process of moving into new homes. And what Gilbert and colleagues found was that each family began to colonize the, the new house with their microbes within just hours of arriving there. Uh, right. And that the, the researchers, quote, could even detect the individual microbial contributions of each family member. Uh, and then Gilbert says, people who spent more time in the kitchen, their microbiome dominated that space. People who spent more time in the bedroom, their microbiome dominated there. You could start to forensically identify their movement.
1: Ooh. <laughs> wow. So this this – M- makes one try to imagine, like, law and order right. microbiology. Yeah, surveillance biotech, ugh.
0: Yeah. Uh, but to to come back to, to Rob Dunn's example about uh, corinobacteria in homes, especially where males live, you you had an interesting thing about that.
1: Yeah, because he brings up a very curious case of a, of an interior environment, an interior home that had a predominantly, certainly uh, at the time of the study, had a predominantly male um uh, population, and that is the International Space Station. Mm. So this was uh, basically there was a, a study of the the microbiota uh, one finds inside the ISS. This was conducted in 2013 by Jonathan uh, Ison, a microbiologist at UC Davis. Uh, so. The, the ISS, Dunn writes, is very much like a house on Earth, <laughs> quote, in nearly every way, the bacteria of the ISS are the sorts of bacteria we would expect in a house on Earth if all the environmental influences were removed. ISS is what you get when you scrub and scrub and close the windows, doors and hatches.
0: So the ISS might be kind of like a very well scrubbed apartment in a high rise in a big city.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no outside to get inside. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, immediately, so obviously um, stuff can be brought up. But anyway, uh, Dunn also points out that in this study of ISS microbes, quote, everything was everywhere. Uh, the interior was just coated in human bacteria, and nothing from outside was getting in obviously. He points out that in a small traditional home made out of mud and leaves, uh, which would have been you know the normal for the vast uh, uh, you know the vast majority of human existence, everything would be everywhere as well, but environmental microbes would be everywhere. What's outside would be inside. But for the ISS, there, there is no outside, really. It is a you know, this sterile environment that is then inhabited by human beings, certainly, but then inhabited, populated by human microbes.
0: Right. So so environmentally sterile, but heavily colonized by what the humans bring with them.
1: Right. Uh, He writes, quote, if you scrub and scrub your home, this is what you may achieve, too. (laughs) It is not unlike what we see in some apartments in Manhattan. Ah. And as we and others have begun to study such apartments, we have found a problem. The problem is not what is present, but instead what is absent. The problem has to do with what happens when we create homes devoid of nearly all biodiversity, except that which falls from us. And then for 23 hours of the day, we don't go outside. So we're kind of getting high on our own supply here. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly. I mean, it's, we're in these interior worlds. We're, not, we're, we're actually going to great pains in many times, or just by you know, virtue of the shape of our cities and the shape of our lives. We're not bringing anything in, or we're bringing in as little as, as possible, And except for everything that just sheds off of us, this kind of like constant um, um, you know, fog of detritus that we're leaving in our wake. Now, this isn't to say there aren't some really interesting things living in the average human home. In his book, uh, Dunn uh, discusses, for instance, the thermophilic bacteria thermus uh, aquaticus, which normally thrives in hot springs and geysers. Uh, you know, kind of a you know, specialist in that regard. But you can pretty much uh, rely on the fact that you can find it in your hot water heater, mm. uh, a part of your artificial environment that recreates uh, environmental conditions that it finds favorable.
0: Yeah, uh, Anthus uh, discusses the research on shower heads. Apparently there tends to be a lot of bacteria living in biofilms and biofilms are the you know these mats that microbes make uh, when they gather in big concentrations. For example, the uh, the dental plaque on your teeth is a biofilm. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. These tend to form on shower heads, in our showers. We don't know exactly why, but maybe because, you know, hey, it's the shower. Doesn't it just get clean by itself? Like, do I really <laughs> need to clean it? Uh, it is clean. It's water
1: coming out of it, right? Exactly. Yeah.
0: It's kind of the, the the logic that's like, why would I ever need to wash my bath towels? You know, they only <laughs> touch me when I'm at my cleanest. Uh, <laughs> um, but Anthus quotes uh, Noah, Noah Fier, explaining – that when hot water suddenly starts shooting out of the shower head where these films are perched, it creates this kind of mist and spray that carries bacteria with it. And then, of course, standing there under the spray in the shower, we ingest that spray. We breathe it right in. And Fiera says, quote, I think it's a really important mechanism by which we're exposed to bacteria, which – okay, so you might be thinking again like, oh my god, my showerhead is filled with horror. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. Again, like a lot of our exposure to microbes is either neutral or beneficial, though of course not all of it
1: yeah yeah the the biofilms in your shower head contain mostly harmless bacteria but it but it interestingly enough it includes non tuberculosis uh, mycobacteria, which are relatives of leprosy and tuberculosis. Uh, the interesting thing here is that they 're chlorine tolerant so while the chlorine in a like a major metropolitan water system kills a lot of the microorganisms that it might otherwise be found there it doesn 't hurt these guys, and actually creates room for them to grow and to thrive so uh, they 're otherwise quite rare in say well water uh, these are I think I read that uh, these biofilms are typically found in general are found in swamps, totally adapted to altering between wet and dry conditions much like your shower head um, but yeah in, in the natural world they're just going to have their their niche to occupy uh, but we've created an artificial environment where they have room to just really uh, grow and thrive and then of course rain down upon us
0: and there could be health implications about those mycobacterial films we don't know for sure but there's a there's a possibility Anthus talks about. Uh, she writes, quote, In fact, Fierre and Dunn discovered that showerheads harboring potentially dangerous strains of mycobacteria clustered in the same regions, uh, mentioning Hawaii, Southern California, Florida, and the Mid Atlantic, that are known to be hotspots for mycobacterial related respiratory infections. Hmm. So the question is are people getting these infections from their showerheads? Uh, Fierre suspects that might be the case. But that doesn't necessarily mean your shower head is making you sick. Some mycobacteria, when inhaled, are, are not harmful. They might even strengthen your immune system.
1: Now, Dunn points out that, that we've been studying uh, microbiota in our homes, actually, since the earliest days of microbiology. Uh, you have uh, this individual by the name of Antony uh, van Leeuwenhoek, who lived 1632 through 1723. And uh, he's often uh, called just the father of microbiology. And, and weirdly enough, he's possibly the model for two different Vermeer paintings. Ooh. I don't know if you've read about this. No, I haven't. Yeah. Um, well, I encourage listeners to look it up. It's pretty fascinating. Like basically, he knew Vermeer and may have posed for these paintings. But uh, he's the, the, the first individual known to have engaged in this sort of study. He charted the microbial populations of his own house, of his own body, and also some neighbors' homes and bodies. Um, with permission, I believe. but but after his death, no one really bothered with this sort of study again until we realized later that some of the microbes we encountered could make us sick. And so it's really it's it's we're really getting into modern times here where we're we're finally, uh, taking a close look at our household microbial environment uh, with researchers like Dunn uh, playing a key role. Um, here, here's another great quote where he's just talking about, you know, undertaking this this project and what they expected to find. He says, quote, we expected to find hundreds of species. Instead, we discovered, depending on just how you uh, do the math, upward of 200,000 species. Many of these species are microscopic, but others are larger and yet nonetheless overlooked. Breathe in. Inhale deeply. With each breath, you bring in oxygen deep into the uh, alveoli of your lungs, along with hundreds or thousands of species. Sit down. Each place you sit, you are surrounded by a floating, leaping, crawling circus of thousands of species. We are never home alone. Whoa. And this is on top of tens and perhaps hundreds of different types of vertebrates, as well as various plants. And then there are the arthropods and the fungi, something like 40,000 species of fungi that can be found in the home. Um, But the bacteria are, are just really the crazy part. He points out that more species of bacteria have been found in human homes than there are species of birds and mammals on Earth.
0: Yeah, uh, th- this type of research is also explored in in Anthes's book, where uh, there's a section where she talks about how uh, Dunn and Fier followed up on their initial research. You know, asking people to take the swabs from the different parts of their home to find out what was there. They decided to do like a bigger, deeper study of the microbes found specifically along the trim of interior doorways and they mm-hmm. picked this area because nobody ever cleans it. <laughs> so <laughs> dust, you know, collects for years maybe without being sterilized and this would give you potentially a, a fuller inventory. And they just found enormous numbers of bacteria in in Anthes's book the number is over uh, 116,000 species of bacteria, more than 63,000 species of fungi. And the count of fungi species was especially interesting to them because they found more numbers of species of fungi in these samples around doorway trims, then there are named species of fungi in all of North America. <laughs> so wow, it means that inside our houses, it's, it's very likely that there are species of fungus that have not yet been discovered or, or cataloged by science. Uh, and they also found that, uh, that for some of these samples, there was more, uh, Fungi diversity inside the house than outside the house, uh, which just, <laughs> uh, which uh, reminds me of the scene in Primer where they don't realize they've created a time machine yet and they think that that the box that they put together is an incubator for mold.
1: Oh, I forgot about that detail. It's been a while since I've seen that
0: one. And fungi in our homes are somewhat different than bacteria in our homes. So they have a different, different vectors and different ways of living. Anthes discusses how the bacteria in our houses They mostly come from us and from the other creatures that live with us, like dogs, and and we'll get into more on that in a bit. But the fungi are not as populous on and in our own bodies. They tend to come more from the environment outside. And what kind of fungi are found within a home is largely determined by where the home is regionally in the climate around the home. What kind of fungi are prevalent in the exterior environment? But there are other factors that have an effect as well. And there's one that I found very interesting. It was what the house is made of. And she quotes from Dunn saying, it's kind of a three pigs thing. A stone house feeds different fungi from a wood house, from a mud house, because unlike the bacteria, they're eating the house. <laughs> so it's like, what have you put out on the buffet for them?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, again, it comes down to the fact that our home is not this, um, this alien thing. You know, it is made out of the natural world, and therefore there are things that want to eat it. <laughs> they eat those materials that made up your home. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's easy to overlook that. But, yeah, it makes perfect sense.
0: So, obviously, I'm sure some people, despite our, our warnings early on, are like, okay, I'm just getting the bleach. I'm going to sterilize my entire living space. Maybe now we should explain why that, that might not be a good idea.
1: Yeah, that, that might be your inclination. And, and really, it, it kind of falls in line with... What advertising has has been uh, has been telling us for years, uh, you know, the sort of world that we grew up in where it's like we got to disinfect the house. You got to keep the house clean as if there is this absolute cleanliness, this no biotic um, uh, aspect of our homes. But, but this way of thinking is essentially treats our homes, again, like some sort of lifeless, nobiotic box, hermetically sealed from the outside and impervious to occupation by anything but the presumably nobiotic creatures living inside it. But mm-hmm. all of this, you know, n- nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, because nature abhors a vacuum, and your home will come to harbor a robust ecosystem, but our actions and our choices have an effect on that ecosystem, as we saw with the shower head and the and the water heater example above. You may keep certain things out, but that just means there 's more room for other things to make themselves at home.
0: all right, well, we need to take a second break, but we will be right back with more
1: all right we 're back so Raining antimicrobial death down on your apartment or house is uh, is also crazy, given that as Dunn and uh, Sebastian Tilch uh, discussed in a 2019 study published in Nature, Ecology and Evolution, only a relatively small proportion of the microorganisms in our environment actually cause disease. It's also worth noting that insects and other uh, arthropods, especially spiders that live in, in the home, are important actors in the ecosystem as they can exterminate mosquitoes, bed bugs, cockroaches, and houseflies, all of which actually can transmit diseases. And it's not a universal thing around the world
0: that people see a spider in their house and say, oh, we've got to kill that. Like some cultures are much more tolerant of spiders with the knowledge that they're performing this important cleaning service.
1: Yeah, I, I, I personally like seeing the spider in the, the bathroom every day. You know, it's it's a friend. You know that it's, it's he, he or she is working to, uh, to, to help make this bathroom a better environment in that paper by Dunn and Tilch. Uh, The authors agree that there's simply no need to wade devastating war against all of these organisms. But more to the point, a lot more work is needed to determine just what sorts of environments are more susceptible to the bad stuff. Uh, Another interesting wrinkle in all of this is that, uh, and, and this is one Dunn discusses in his book, is exactly what household dogs reveal about the contrast between the exterior ecosystem and our interior worlds.
0: Dogs are amazing at bringing you filth. I think about this with my dog every day. It's like it, it, every single day he's like, let me nourish your microbiome.
1: Well, I think ultimately the way to look at it is the dog is not just bringing filth in. The dog is nurturing your filth. Like there's going to be filth. Mm-hmm. If you wish to categorize the microbial world as filth, uh, there's no escaping it. Um, so the, the dog is ultimately just bringing something to the equation. Mm-hmm. So f- for a lot of us, we tend to leave our, our artificial interior world, you know, again, hop into another uh, one that happens to have wheels, travel to, to work, come back, et cetera. Uh, a lot of us do get out into the natural world, but there are plenty of us that don't do it on a regular basis. If you have pets, indoor-only varieties contribute to the microbial stew that is your home, but there's no beating a dog for a bridge between inner and outer ecosystems. There's also no beating a dog, just in general. I don't want to encourage anybody. Uh, but <laughs> for starters, your dog is likely drawing you out into the outside environment. Uh, you know, you're going to probably hopefully you're going to take your dog on walks. You're going to you know, go out into the world with it. But at the very least, that dog is going out to get all up in the natural world and then bring some of it back home. This this has been your experience with as a dog owner, correct? Oh, though? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, now there are certainly harmful possibilities here, such as if your dog were to bring back fleas or ticks. And this has always been an issue uh, with ancient Egyptian dog remains showing signs of brown dog ticks, which certainly do carry pathogens. But there's also a plethora of of harmless effects and a seemingly beneficial uh, impact as well. Dunn points out that by looking at household microbes alone, first of all, one can tell if there's a dog in the house at all 99% of the time. Uh, The dog just leaves a microbial footprint uh, that's hard to miss. Uh, But uh, uh, beyond this, it's hard to tell at this point what specific effects dogs and cats have on the intermicrobial environment because there's a lot of complexity there. But Dunn says that we certainly see, especially in urban environments with dogs, that the children in those households are less prone to allergy and asthma. So the dogs might actually be a vehicle connecting the children to nature. And just the dirt on their paws, for instance, might be enough uh, to essentially provide some sort of uh, uh, replacement for spending time in nature and, and in the natural microbial environment.
0: Yeah, this is the connection to what used to be known as the hygiene hypothesis, though Anthus notes that some researchers have pointed out that this name can be kind of misleading because the the point of the hygiene hypothesis is not that you like shouldn't wash your hands. Uh, it's more mm. about... Having an exposure to a diverse array of microbiota early in life can, if this hypothesis is correct, help, uh, help strengthen your immune system in various ways and make you less prone to, say, allergies and asthma and things like that. More recently, people have tried to, to recoin this thing not as the hygiene hypothesis but as the old friend's hypothesis.
1: Oh, like the, the, the natural microbial world is an old friend right. that we should reacquaint ourselves with.
0: And that it's good to get acquainted with early in life, uh, yeah. not necessarily that you like shouldn't wash your hands or shouldn't wipe down the counter after you've been slicing chicken or something.
1: Yeah. <laughs> now, this is primarily with dogs. With with cats, there seems to be far less of a connection. Uh, and also it's noted that in rural environments, uh, we see less evidence of this and the idea is that. Individuals in a rural environment are probably getting more exposure to to the outside to the natural world in general, so the dog isn 't going to make that much of a difference. The dog is less of a, a tap of hot and cold running exterior microbes, <laughs> and I think all of that helps to underline you know our desire and our and indeed our need to get out of the house and interact with nature on a regular basis. Uh, Dunn says that that one day we might be able to manage our interior microbiota in a way that will help ensure that we're healthy and uh, and that you know everything's in balance uh but for now that's just not the case we just we don't understand enough if we haven't explored uh the the interior world enough to know exactly what we're dealing with and again like what kind of environments. Are, are more prone to be occupied by the bad stuff versus the, the, the beneficial stuff or the stuff that is just uh, uh, there and part of the world we live in.
0: Though I think it is clear that built environments do make a difference. Uh, though we, we don't fully understand exactly what all the causal relationships are yet, but there have definitely been measured differences – that uh, show, for example, where rooms are placed and what their relationships to other rooms where different things happen, uh, that that does affect what kinds of uh, microbiota we find in those rooms. Uh, just hmm. the example of having open windows that open to the outside world, as opposed to having a room that's all closed off to the outside world and just uh, ventilated by you know HVAC systems, that makes a difference to what the microbiome of the room looks like.
1: Yeah, I mean... It- I mean, even if the windows don't open, you know, we've looked at studies before that have looked on the psychological impact of just being able to see the outside world, especially in uh, hospital environments. Yeah, uh,
0: and, and we do know a few other things, too. Like, we, one of the things that Anthes mentions, it seems to be a pretty straightforward finding, is that... One good way to encourage healthy ecosystems of microbes within the house is basically to keep the house dry. Moisture seems to activate a lot of unwanted fungal activity, uh, but you can mm. still have a lot of healthy microbes with the house that's that's relatively dry. Uh, you know, it, She says that a lot of these experts who are looking at this do not recommend using antimicrobial agents in the house, as you've been talking about. So there are a few things we know, but yeah, there's still a whole lot more to learn about the interactions between our, our living space architecture and our home cleaning regimes and all that stuff with the microscopic invisible world.
1: Yeah, and that's interesting. I mean, obviously, it's going to be more of a challenge in damper environments, say like um, you know, a, a rainforest environment. But I guess there, I guess one is tempted to, to ask the question, well, what are the traditional modes of housing? You know what were the uh, were the were the, the trial and error developments in housing there versus the um, the the modern uh, solutions that have been brought in from other environments, uh, without perhaps without really taking uh, full account of the local conditions. Yeah,
0: that's an interesting question. I haven't considered that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You, you walk around any given neighborhood, right, and you 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 see these trends in homes, and occasionally you'll see a home that is that, that's clearly out of place. But it makes you wonder, like, just how out of place is it? Mm-hmm. Is the design like not suited for the? Uh, you know the, the energy consumption rates, or, or the uh, or, or just the like the the, the 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 level the amount of sun you get in a given um, a part of the world, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, you know, I I think one of the things we can take from this episode is that yeah, homes are are far more complicated. They're not just the the, the space we the, in which we live. You know, a container for our lives. Like they uh, they are going to shape uh, who we are uh, on a microbial level, on a symbolic level. Um, it's uh yeah it's 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 mind-blowing stuff definitely. And then sometimes you find yourself, you know, during a pandemic spending a lot of time in your closet recording <laughs> podcasts uh, in
0: your laundry room.
1: Yeah, rooms that were never designed or intended for this kind of lengthy habitation. Luckily my uh my closet here does have an air vent in it oh. um which has been a lifesaver.
0: I don't think my laundry room does. I'm just checking oh, around for it i have uh i've had a few sweaty times in here
1: well it's this good news for when the, the winter sets in right for both of us because uh, i think this is going to be pretty cozy in here and if you get uh cold in the laundry room you can always just turn on the dryer right i'm really trying to get
0: it set up so that i can record from a different room i'm trying to, to make a different room in the house less echoey so i can get good sound and not have to hunch over next to the washing machine
1: I am digging an earthen pit in my backyard, which <laughs> um, I am told will have a really good uh, uh, sound insulation. So we'll see how that goes.
0: Mammoth bone studio.
1: Yes. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, hopefully this provides some some food for thought. Again, we are not trying to encourage uh, anybody to uh, go on a um, uh, any kind of a killing spree in their house concerning uh, microbes or uh, uh, arthropods or anything like that. Uh, just... We thought that as we're spending more time looking at our homes and thinking about getting out in nature, uh, we should really look at what the, the relationship between those two environments actually is. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, well, you can find us wherever you get your podcast and wherever that happens to be. Just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. And if you get in touch with us, I mean, clearly we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. How do you relate to the content here? Uh, How does it change or back up your own thoughts and observations concerning your interior environment or the external world?
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas, Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at Stuff to Blow Your mind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.